This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss how to improve healthcare through preventative wellness with health technology expert, George Barakat. We'll discover the challenges of bringing phytoplankton to the world with nutraceutical manufacturer David Hunter. We'll find out about the myths and facts regarding diabetes and age with Dr. Stuart Ross. And lastly, we'll learn tips to help you get anxiety in check before sleep with health and technology expert Julian Hayon. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. It may come as no surprise to you, but researchers in public policy and education out of the University of Arkansas recently found that young adults who use more social media are significantly more likely to develop depression within six months, regardless of their personality type. Drinking two or three cups of coffee a day is linked with a longer lifespan and lower risk of cardiovascular disease compared with avoiding coffee, according to new research. The findings applied to ground, instant, and decaffeinated varieties. The professor in charge of the study by the European Society of Cardiology noted that it is likely that the non-caffeinated compounds were responsible for positive relationships observed between coffee drinking, cardiovascular disease, and survival. You may not realize it, but each time you recall a memory, like your first time riding a bike or walking into your high school prom, your brain changes the memory ever so slightly. It's almost like adding a filter, with details being filled in and information being updated or lost with each recall. Researchers at a Boston University are determining if it's possible to use the malleable nature of our memories to our advantage as a way to cure mental health disorders such as depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. And after years of studying memory in mice, they found not only that the brain stores positive and negative memories, but also how to turn the volume down on negative memories by artificially stimulating other happier ones. That was your Tonic Quick Shot. I'll be joined by George Barakat in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. Your family's health and wellness needs should come first. These days, taking care of a loved one should be as easy as ordering goods and groceries to your door on your smartphone. You need MedWorks, an at-home service that pulls it all together. We make health care and wellness services easy to navigate. MedWorks, at home your way every day. Download the app today. MedWorks. George Barakat is the CEO and directing mind of MedWorks, a healthcare technology company. He's also the founder and former CEO of Jack Nathan Health, where he spent over 20 years building and shaping a chain of more than 150 medical and multidisciplinary health clinics across Canada and Mexico. George is an expert in health and wellness technology and virtual medicine. Hey, George, how are you? I'm great, Jamie. How are you? Good. Last time we got together and spoke, we were doing an overview of the Canadian healthcare system and talking about what's right and maybe things that we could think could be done better. 
And I think this little discussion, maybe we can really sort of dig into ways we can approach some of those issues and maybe some new ideas about how to fix some of the things that Canadians may not love about our healthcare system. Does that make sense to you? Makes sense. I mean, whew, don't want to be on that hot seat anymore talking about regulations. Exactly. Yeah, so, no, I, I think that, you know, we're here to help improve it. Okay. Let's first identify some of the issues that you think are important to Canadians based on the research you've done vis-a-vis their healthcare. Well, the most important issues to Canadians is, I believe, aging gracefully. I think that that statement alone is reflective upon themselves, the aging population, their parents, their grandparents. It really is going to be a different country when we have one third of our population that will be over the age of 65 in the next 10, 12 years. The other thing that Canadians, I as a Canadian, would like to see more is how do we wrap our hands around more preventative health care rather than reactive health care. And I said this in closing in one of our prior discussions where aging needs to become a lifestyle. So how do we get from, you know, aging today is we're going to get old, let's react to it, let's, you know, look at a Band-Aid fix and not look at how do we figure out from a preventative standpoint how to incorporate a better lifestyle choices that are available to us. And the only way to do that is to see options. Yeah. And sort of rethink what healthcare means and, you know, what does it mean to be proactive, right? So maybe, I mean, I can think of it from my health and wellness perspective is keeping a certain strength level and practicing balance so that you can remain mobile, so that you can do the things that you want to do. Because if you're mobile, that's one of the indicia of graceful aging, as you put it, right? Like the ability to get around on your own without assistance is a serious issue as we get older, for example, right? Yeah, for example, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Let's look at it from a I work out, you work out, you know, at this point in our age, we're not out to power lift. No. But the one thing I guarantee if you talk to any personal trainer, they're going to tell you is core, 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 work on your core. Right. Back, front, core, core. This is what's going to hold you up. You know how many few people in life really understand that basic knowledge? And again, I'm not looking at personal training from uh, as defining the healthcare system. It's one aspect of it. No, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's one aspect that we should be looking at, whether we do it on our own. Right. Whether we look up what we should be doing at what age. Right. What foods we eat. How we can improve our lifestyle by having uh, diagnostic checkups from samples to physicals every year. Right. And even more important, how do we get that holistic mindset where we want to look good outside in as well? The funny thing about it is, I don't want to sound vain in any way when you say this, but everybody knows this. You feel good outside, look at outside, you feel good inside. Yeah. Now, you can't help if something's going on in your insides. You're, you're obviously going to be looking at how to improve your health care. But I have always believed that there is a certain aspect of your health and wellness that has to have both in balance. To my mind, it's also an issue of pure costs. Like, I'm a former echo major. And the cost of preventative medicine, right, of being responsible for your own health and taking those steps that you can do to improve your health before it becomes a quote unquote problem that has to be addressed, right, which is reactive medicine. So you've allowed things to digress to a point where you need, you know, care of a certain sort, which comes with a price tag, right? And it it comes, you know, the way our system works, it means that there has to be allocations made in order to make sure that you're properly treated. Whereas maybe with the proper information and the proper effort and the proper tools, you might have avoided that problem just by doing, for example, eating better 
or spending time with friends to make sure that you have a social network because that can assist your health as well, right? Well, for sure. You know, that will uplift your spirits any day of the week. I mean, having your friends, family around is good. Yeah, it's good for you. Now, you touched on something and you said, look, look, what is the cost of healthcare, of preventative healthcare? I would ask the question this way. What's the cost of reactive medicine? Right. Okay. No, exactly. Yeah. So reactive medicine is far worse. And what it does is it costs you, it costs the system, it costs the government, and costs your life eventually. Yeah. I don't think we can afford as a society to think of healthcare the way we have in the past. And what we're doing and what we're launching at MedWorks is going to provide options to consumers, options to users so that they can make their choices, they can make better decisions. And the thing about MedWorks is we're not reinventing the wheel. What we're doing is we're taking the existing providers that already operate health and wellness operations and businesses, bringing their brands onto our app and making that available in the region that the user puts in their address. I think that one of the other aspects of how do we improve or how do we change that mindset to preventative from reactive is one thing that we've incorporated, and that's your own personal health care coordinator. Imagine having somebody you could call right. that could literally organize all of your health and wellness needs from med spa to physiotherapy to mental health to taking care of a loved one with remote patient monitoring tools, outpatient care because you have a loved one that came out from post-op surgery. All of these things, coordinating them in the past was, you know, you had to depend on finding it yourself or having referrals from different providers and you don't know which one's right. There isn't an overall option package. I look at it this way. The internet is a wonderful thing, but it's vast and overwhelming. And all the options exist, but if you're not informed, if you don't have a guide, if you don't have a concierge, if you don't have a curator of the internet to assist you, it's a morass. I mean, you, you could be there forever trying to find what you need. And I think that's what you're saying, right? I think you're saying it's that expertise, it's that service slash person who can guide you through to get those services and goods that you need that would save time and money, I would think. Oh, it's even more simplistic than that, Jamie. It's having a healthcare coordinator just listen. Right. What do you need? You know, can we go through our services together that we offer at MedWorks? Right. Oh, yes. You know, I'd like to set up massages for my husband and myself. I'd like to get a manicure, pedicure for my my mom. You know, she's not feeling too well. She's a bit gloomy. Also, can we get a paramedic to check on her virtually? twice a week and maybe get her set up on an oximeter, a blood cuff monitor and some RPM tools. And you know what? Daughter's not feeling too well or or son. They've gone through this pandemic. They've been on virtual care. Hey, is there anyone that could talk to them, you know, and put that all into your calendar, schedule that for you, transact on it, set reminders. And all of a sudden, just like that, with a snap of the fingers instantly, you are in preventative healthcare. It's not that complicated. It's just options and listen. So we've discussed sort of the aging population and we've discussed the cost-benefit analysis and the relative cost of, of reactive medicine. What else do you see as issues that need to be addressed in our health system right now and in the future? Well, the number one issue, and again, <laughs> I come from the retail healthcare side where when I originally started this journey, it was how do we bring the clinic to the consumer in the big box retailer? Right. My mindset has shifted 180 degrees where we have to bring the provider to your home. Okay. We need to align that provider or those options with the retailer like we have in the past. 
But the retailer no longer is counting on the provider to occupy that space because the provider doesn't need to anymore. The provider now has options to do digital medicine, shorten their hours, not be in that space unless there is a absolute need to see that provider from a patient standpoint. Right. We need to think like we did in the old days of how do we bring that provider to your house? Mm-hmm. Okay. Everything else has moved in that direction. Look at where we are today. We're right back where we started, where goods, groceries, milk, house calls were delivered to your house. Not today. Today, we're using technology to have those goods, groceries, and product delivered to your house. Why not healthcare? Right. What are we waiting for? You know, there can't be a hesitation in always healthcare moving last. Healthcare should be about options. That's what MedWorks does. You know, I always thought that the doctors were reluctant to go and do the house calls, right? Because that's the way medicine used to be brought to people's houses because of inefficiencies, right? Like it's just time consuming them for them to hit the road and, and not be in their offices. You know, it wasn't as efficient to go out and do the call. And then I, I guess go and then do the paperwork after. Has the technology made it more convenient from a practitioner perspective? Oh, 100%. So the doctors, realistically, through telemedicine, they're doing house calls. Right. They're just not traveling. Right. So the doctors, I don't think, have the budget or the government has the wherewithal to create an ecosystem of doctors that can go in the house. It's unaffordable. Right. Healthcare today, from a social level in Canada, is becoming unaffordable. Yep. You know, from a sustainability aspect. What we need to do to make healthcare more sustainable is give the users and consumers options. We have to stop treating healthcare, especially from a walk-in clinic or a urgent care standpoint, as overly regulated. You know, what we have to do is keep the regulation so the standard of care is at a level. Mm-hmm. That is one thing, but give consumers options on who they want to receive their care from. Mm-hmm. If they want to pay out of pocket for that care, let them pay. You know, it's not opening up a two-tier system. If anything, it's freeing up our existing system and allowing our existing system to be utilized for what it was meant to be utilized. If I have a serious health issue, I don't mind waiting to see a doctor, right? Mm -hmm. What I resent, what I think is inconvenient, what I think could be better is if you don't really have a serious health issue, it's a health issue, but it doesn't necessarily require me seeing a doctor. Maybe there's another practitioner who could, you know, do what is necessary, which would expedite, you know, it's almost like you're streaming healthcare so that if it's a less serious matter, maybe you just need some stitches or maybe you just need somebody to look at a rash or maybe, I don't know what it is, somebody to take a swab of your throat. It doesn't necessarily have to be a doctor. You don't necessarily have to wait two hours to see the doctor to have that done. Maybe there's a solution that works that way. I don't know. Yeah, no, there is. I mean, today we've already sanctioned paramedics and nurse practitioners to look at everything from, well, paramedics, they're like the Swiss army knife of healthcare. Right. They can do everything. I mean, they've, they've probably seen more in the field than most physicians. There was actually a study four years ago that ranked them at the top of the provider list of trusted providers. I think that for in MedWorks, we're utilizing the paramedics for what they're really good at, mm-hmm. and especially community paramedics. And that is, how do we get into the home? How do we look at a consultation of how do we improve their lifestyle? You know, the funny thing is, is you could visit a doctor a hundred times in a lifetime or whatever it's going to be. They won't truly understand your living conditions, what you're faced with, your family around you and what you could need. And whether it's help to have you eat in a more nutritious fashion, organize your groceries, tuck you in at night with a telemedicine call, making sure you're okay. All of this stuff cannot be done in a clinic environment. It has to be done at home. And, you know, if we really care about our citizens and how 
we as citizens want to age gracefully and make it so aging becomes a lifestyle, we have to open it up. We have to make available all these other providers that will free the doctors up to do what the doctors need to do. Also, I think we need to start conceiving of like, who is a healthcare practitioner? Because it isn't just paramedics and nurses and doctors. Sure. You, you have, you know, a registered massage therapist can offer relief and comfort and help you with an existing pain. You don't need to see a doctor for it. They may be able to feel through it and, and help you alleviate that, that, that pain. Uh, somebody who does rehab work might be able to give you some exercises so that your wonky ankle is a little bit smoother in the morning. And I'm speaking personally here. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a podiatrist comes to your house and, you know, takes measurements for some orthopedics. So that you don't need to go to a clinic. So how that. would you do that today? You'd have to go to a doctor, get a referral, yeah, no, go no to a question. clinic. Exactly. You know what I mean? You could, realistically, you could call up any physiotherapist. Of course. And do it on your own. Right. But who do you call? We, you know, this and that. If you have third-party insurance, it's covered anyway. So I think... It's true. I no, think it's, that, it's, it's not a cost issue, but it's a convenience issue. It's a convenience issue. It's options. It's how do we see those options live? Right. What other tools are you contemplating and, and are on the horizon that you think are going to help? One of the tools that we've incorporated that allows MedWorks to become the middleware between the retailer and the provider is we have a very slick QR code scanner in the top right of the app. And picture a world where if you're at a retailer and you've got posters or electronic ads or marketing with a QR code up top for a physiotherapist that's in the region. Right. That's amazing because now what you're doing at being that big box retailer is you're saying, look, we're bringing in all these trusted entities of society and we're partnering with them using MedWorks and right away when that code is scanned, it leads into that provider's microstore. Now imagine the benefit for the retailer who also has the prescriptions, OTC, food, and they've got their ads at the provider locations. Right. Cross-pollinating that relationship is really about a holistic conversation of how to improve yours and your family's health care. Here's the thing. Regardless, no one's going to do it for you. But if you had a plethora of options, it's almost like opening up, opening up Google and doing a search for, you know, a Toyota. You're going to get 20 different dealerships. Right. You're going to be able to click on toyota.com or look at the dealerships and make calls because that's what has come up. Right. Those are options, right? And the funny thing is you can transact on any one of those options instantly. Go see that car. You can't do that in healthcare. It's not set up that way. You have guidelines, parallel lines that you have to work between. It shouldn't be that way. And you know what? MedWorks is going to open the availability and options right up for users and consumers. That is going to help the governments. It's going to help our local system. It's going to free up beds. It's going to provide options to consumers. And more importantly, in collaboration with the government, we may be able to solve a lot of problems. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jamie. Really appreciate it. MedWorks, at home, your way, every day. Download the app today. For more information about George and MedWorks, visit medworks.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss phytoplankton on The Tonic. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. If you're like me, you love delicious and nutritious foods. You need to know what's new in health and wellness, and you're looking for something fun to do. Why not visit the Tonic Marketplace at the Zoomer Show on October 29th and 30th? It's a specially curated area that has all your favorite health and wellness brands like Kalaya and Yosos. Free samples, tons of giveaways, lots of fun. See you at the Tonic Marketplace. For more information, visit zoomershow.com. Karen Phytoplankton brings you the nutritional benefits of marine phytoplankton. 
With two unique strains isolated out of millions, it has the same oxygenating and detoxifying effect on the body as it does on the ocean. Sustainably grown in their state-of-the-art garden, the only byproducts are oxygen and clean ocean water. Less than three years ago, their products were available in one store. Now it's 3,500. There's a massive post-COVID comeback on the way, and Karen Phytoplankton is leading the charge. Visit thekarenproject.ca to try some phytoplankton today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. David Hunter is the founder and CEO of Karen Phytoplankton. After discovering the benefits of marine phytoplankton, he dedicated himself to sharing it with the world. He partnered with Phytoplankton Marino in southern Spain, world leaders in microalgae production, to produce his phytoplankton nutritional supplement, marketed under the Karen brand, named after his mother. Welcome to the show, David. How are you? I'm doing awesome, Jamie. Thanks for having me on here. So for those who don't know, what is phytoplankton? Okay, well, for the people who don't know, marine phytoplankton is a plant, and it's the smallest plant on the earth, and it is the absolute origin of life, food, and nutrition. It's a garden of microscopic vegetables that float on the surface of the ocean that nobody can see but sustain the entire nutritional needs of the ocean. Okay, what are the health benefits of phytoplankton? Like, why should we, as land dwellers, want to have phytoplankton? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So the reason why phytoplankton is pretty monumental or shown itself to be is that phytoplankton in its original pure form has every single vitamin and mineral that we know about inside this microscopic plant. So everybody, you know, omega-3s, vitamin C, all the B vitamins, selenium, magnesium, this is all present in its purest form in marine phytoplankton. So since a lot of people are malnourished based on, you know, the the North American diet, you know, that people say don't feel well, well, we believe that a lot of people don't feel well because they're malnourished. So when the body actually receives nutrition, it's missing. The body feels a lot better and can heal itself. Okay, so in order to get those health benefits, like your phytoplankton, I'm like I'm sure it's processed in some ways. Is it a powder or is it how does it work? Okay, yeah. So originally it starts off as a powder. So like we grow it from the heirloom seed and inside enclosed tubes. So then there's no contamination and and all that. But yeah, like when it, after it grows, it becomes like a vibrant green paste. And then we freeze dry it. We bring it, like take the moisture out of it and freeze it at the same time. So the bacteria can't grow. And then we, we turn it into a powder. So people either can consume it as a pure powder, like either but with water into a smoothie you know, applesauce, whatever, or the most popular way to deliver it is the tablet. That's our number one selling, number one selling product because it does taste a little bit like the ocean. So some people love it. Some people don't. It's kind of like seafood. You either love it or you don't. Got it. So how does somebody like you get involved with creating phytoplankton for us to eat? How did that happen? (laughs) Yeah, it was a complete fluke. I got hired. I used to live on Vancouver Island. And I got hired as a marketing um, salesperson for a shellfish farm out in Nanaimo. And the really quick story is is that so shellfish destined for restaurants who took phytoplankton as their feed yeah. were two and a half times bigger than regular shellfish that were on traditional commercial feed. And my coworker ate the phytoplankton as a joke, and he anecdotally 
told me like a couple of weeks after he started to take it that he was a type 1 diabetic and his blood sugar was normal for the first time like ever in 20 years. And he also was diagnosed with mesothelioma and he went in to go get a talk treatment, which is kind of a process because the response from the lung cancer, it's a lung cancer mm. response is like filling up full of fluid. And so they do this thing called the talking treatment to kind of stop that from happening so he can die peacefully, I guess, for, you know, it's kind of thing. And uh, when he went in for the talking treatment, they found a white cotton substance around the pleural lining of his lungs, and they didn't do the operation and reported that there was no cancer in his body at all. And um, his recovery made the newspaper and front page of the Nanaimo Daily News, and so a whole bunch of people came up and picked up phytoplankton, including myself. I started to eat it. I had a complete recovery from a long-term migraine headaches, chronic fatigue, and a nasal drip. And I just watched people 30 days later coming back for more, saying kind of the same kind of stories, whether it was dandruff, joint pain, you know, something debilitating. And then I just saw so much of it, including my own experience. I'm like, you know, the original nutrient on the planet, like this is the holy grail of nutrition. Like this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. So I originally went to go sell a shellfish food and then this is ended this whole thing transformed. This event transformed my life back in 2005. Wow. Okay. So you're not on the West Coast anymore though. You're on the East Coast now? That's right. Yeah. I live in New Brunswick right now. Okay. And so how did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Was it this epiphany moment for you where where your health improved or was it something else? Well, you know, like, you know, they said it's the Karen brand is named after my mom. You know, Which is a tricky brand name given the attachment. Sorry, no insult <laughs> oh, to your mother, but to call oh, it Karen uh, is a risk, my friend. <laughs> oh, you know what? Totally. I mean, this is just like, you know, the things that can happen, you know, of course, because they named <laughs> this product before this whole meme came out, right? Right, exactly. And, um, but you know what? I just stuck to my guns. And, and if anything, Jamie... Marketing 101, very risky, but regardless if it's negative or positive, people are saying your brand name. Exactly. And what it does is because phytoplankton is so different and out there and people don't know what it was, and then it's called Karen, like it creates like it kind of what they call passing the broca, like where somebody can come out of consciousness and go, why in the world would they call this Karen? I have to tell you, that was my first response, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I saw, obviously, it was named after your mother, which is beautiful. But yeah, I mean, I saw some challenges there. Well, good for you. you Yeah, you know what? It was one of those things. It's like, do you pivot or you uh, stick to your guns? And I stuck to the guns. And you know what? For the most part, it creates a a weird awareness. And then, you know, but once people hear about it, you know, then they're go, oh, okay, well, that makes sense, right? I mean, there's a lot of people named Karen, right? You know, especially, you know, I was born in the 70s, right? So, um, yeah, but I think that, you know, my mom passed away when I was a kid because of cancer. You know, Tom, who was my co-worker, I talked about, you know, he recovered from cancer. So that was, of course, very emotional for me, I guess, because anybody who's lost anybody to cancer, I mean, that those scars stick, right? Like, yes. I mean, they don't go away. But then I had my own recovery, and my mom was a nurse, so I had a little bit of that. I spent a lot of time in hospitals as a child, like, waiting for my mom to get off work and stuff, because we were latchkey kids, and my dad was a nighttime bus driver. So, like, I was in the hospital a lot, and, you know, I just cared about people. I kind of grew up in that environment, and I just felt like, you know, if this can make people feel as good as these people that I'm witnessing, including myself, feel. I'm like, I've never felt like this taking anything else and such a healing thing. And I'm like, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Like, you know, I'm going to sink my teeth into this, you know, uh, sink or swim. This needs to happen. So I made that decision probably early 2006 and I haven't looked back. 
So, was the marketing the issue with the Karen name the, your biggest challenge, or, or was there another challenge that you had to face? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I mean, this whole thing, it's like, you know, you have something so great, and there's always challenges when you start a business, right? So, marine phytoplankton, nobody knows what that is, or very few people know what marine phytoplankton. The name of the strain is called Nanocolorapsis gadatana. You yeah. know, Rules you want to throw that into a blender and smoke it, right? Like, it, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Right. And so, what I wanted to do is I wanted to take a page from the pharma playbook you know, like where they call it like Viagra or Cialis or, you know, like yeah. they make easy names for things. But like I wanted to convince, you know, like those 85 letters <laughs> and then put it into one easy name. So I called it Karen back like again before the meme thing. And I go, oh, you know, that's easy. You know, it's caring. It's female. It's nurturing. Hey, this is it rolls off the tongue. It's pretty easy. <laughs> and yeah. then the meme came out and it's like, you know, throws it upside down. But hey. Whatever, <laughs> you just got to go for it, right? I hear you. But that was that was that was the idea, like when I was naming it. So, what is your website if people want more information about the brand? Yeah, thekarenproject.ca. And on there, are there anecdotal stories of people healing, or is there some science there as well? What do you have? Yeah, there? yeah, like there's you know the growing facility and stuff. So here's here's you know you want to talk about marketing challenges, is that our anecdotes are so strong that, you know, we're actually like, we kind of got not allowed to put them on there because they were like... Well, you got to be careful when you start making claims about curing cancer. I mean, that is a dangerous line. Of course. Yeah. You could go to jail for stuff like that. Right. But I mean, you know, these things like this stuff is actually still online about the paper and all that stuff, you know, and this is a real event um, kind of thing. But there is like a new type of way to get reviews on there, even if they're, you know, maybe not Health Canada approved. You have to go through this kind of third party thing that we're investing in now. And so like everything's like really verified and reviewed and stuff. So we're kind of we, we just made a big investment into that so we can have like verified reviews. So then people can say their true story. So we've, it has been a challenge on that, but I think how we've just been marketing it is just actually by the Karen name, just telling people what phytoplankton is, that we're growing it sustainably. It's, you know, an alternative to say like an omega-3 and, you know, vegans, vegetarians like it. And, you know, so like, you know, we have our base, you know what I mean? And then also to word of mouth, because then, you know, we feel like, you know, for everybody who takes it and gets a good result, um, you know, they usually tell like 10 other friends, right? So that's been helping us drive you so, know, this project as well. Okay, so $64,000 question. The tablets are tasteless or do they taste of the sea? <laughs> no, they have a coat. They have like a lemon coating on them. Oh, so lemon's yeah, no, they, uh, lemon's no, good. Lemon's good. not going to get the burps. No. Okay. That's, that, that, <laughs> you knew where I was going with that. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. All right, so uh, we have time for one last question, and that is, you know, leaving aside cancer, what are the benefits of the, uh, the phytoplankton? Like, is it just the more energy and more vigor? Is that what you're looking at? Yeah, like pretty much it's always the same. It's mental clarity and energy, energy from mental clarity, like body energy. A lot of people say that they sleep better and digestion, you know, so that's kind of like the core, like pretty much nutritionally. Yeah, that's that's the core of what we get. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks a lot, Jamie. It was a pleasure being here. For more information about David Hunter and his business, visit thekarenproject.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll discuss truths and myths about diabetes and age on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. 
Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Lack of magnesium can lead to serious health issues. Sadly, one in three Canadians aren't getting enough. Common signs include trouble sleeping, low concentration, irritability, headaches, muscle cramps, or spasms. Could you be lacking? Choose from New Roots Herbal's Ultra Gentle Magnesium Bisglycinate, Heart Mag for added cardiac support, or Clarity Mag, a no-brainer for anyone over 50, exclusively at health food stores. To find a store near you, visit newrootsherbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Stuart Ross is a leader in clinical care education and research in endocrinology and diabetes medicine. Dr. Ross is an endocrinologist at Calgary's LMC Clinic and has been a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Calgary since 1985, contributing to over 150 textbooks, abstracts, and publications. Dr. Ross is also a recipient of the Queen's Jubilee Medal for Services to Canada. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? Just fine, thanks. We are going to talk today about current diabetes research, which I know you're intimately involved with, and specifically the focus on diabetes and age. At a broad level, what are the links between diabetes and age? They're quite strong. If you recall, if you go back far enough in the world of diabetes, we used to call diabetes maturity diabetes or juvenile diabetes because maturity kind of reflected that it occurred in older people and the juveniles occurred in the young ones, the teenagers. We dropped that many years ago because it didn't make sense because uh, not only do older people get diabetes, but younger people do, even in their teens. And you can get an 80-year-old with type 1 diabetes, and they don't like to be called juvenile either. Right. So we use the term type 1, which means insulin requiring, and type 2, which means that you may or may not require insulin. And we know that there's a direct linkage, of course, to age. The vast majority of cases occur in the older age group. Now, the older age group is shifting downwards all the time because we start to look very carefully for diabetes in people in, in their 40s and we watch carefully with some of the linkages with age which is increasing weight, decreased activity, aspects that might trigger the process towards diabetes. So there is definitely a linkage towards age and we see the majority in the older age group but it absolutely does occur in younger people and that of course is a concern to us. Right. And I would imagine we're seeing it more in younger people just because of the way our lifestyles have changed, right? We're more sedentary. We don't exercise. We eat differently. I'm sure those are all factors. It's most likely. I think that those are big factors. We also, we're learning a lot more about genetics. We know that there are some families where it will occur in younger people. We've been very worried, particularly in indigenous populations, where we're starting to see diabetes in teenagers. So there are many factors which lead to it, but we do know that the concept of ideal weight and good exercise routines are very beneficial, but maybe not totally protective. Okay, so type 1 diabetes is hereditary, and as you said, it was you know, historically diagnosed in childhood. 
But I think you alluded to the fact that it's possible that you could be diagnosed later in life, right? Yes, absolutely. And the hereditary process is complex. It's not that the parent has a gene and the child then gets diabetes. It seems to be that the genetic transfer is a risk towards diabetes. It's the fact is that if something else happens, we've wondered about viral infections and other things like that, that will trigger the process towards type 1 diabetes. And a lot of the research is actually aimed at that. It's aimed at what is the trigger which hits that genetic predisposition and can we block it or stop it? And it does run in families. We are very much aware of that. How much does age impact type 2 diabetes? It's quite a lot. There's two sides to that. One is the actual, the greater number of people are in their older age group, and that can be due to many different reasons. So we start looking very carefully, 40s and 50s and onwards, and most physicians will always be testing anybody who walks into their office for the first time or any time and says, I don't feel well, or I'm tired, etc., etc., and they'll be looking for diabetes. There's another aspect to the age story which actually came out, was sort of highlighted a little bit at the recent European Diabetes Meeting where a lot of research was presented. And you might be interested to know that Canada has been a major leader in this. The story comes in the treatment of an older person because in the past, the elderly, as the term is described, was defined as anybody over the age of 65. And they either got two forms of treatment. They got, well, they're older, but we've got to protect them, so we treat them the same as a 20-year-old. And that's not a good idea in a person who's already got other medical problems. So that led to bad side effects from drugs like low blood sugar. We call that hypoglycemia, which is just a disaster for older people or anybody, really. Mm -hmm. And then was the other side of the story, which said, oh, well, they're they're elderly, so we don't have to treat them quite so strong because they're going to die off anyway. And Mm -hmm. so we use less medications. And all that, it was Diabetes Canada, through its expert guidelines, actually changed that and basically said, treat the elderly person as an individual. You can have an 85-year-old who's as bright as a button, fully active and good health, And we would definitely want to protect them against some of the bad side effects of diabetes itself. Or the next time, it might be a 70-year-old who's had serious heart problems, had a stroke, is having trouble in living situations, and we'll be gentle and more specific in terms of our treatment. And the real buzzword for that is individualization. Instead of saying every person with diabetes gets drug A, then drug B, then drug C, don't do that. They might need drug C first whereas the next person might require another combination. And this has proved to be very successful, and some of the research being presented at these big scientific meetings is confirming that. So when you say age, to me, I think of two things. Yes, I've got to be careful watching for it in an older person, but also I want to think very thoughtfully about how I'm going to treat any older person. And I will not define age because I don't think we can anymore. As as I just mentioned, you can get a big range of abilities and mental capacity and care over a very wide range of age groups. So better to call a person that they may be older and treat appropriately. What you've just described makes sense if you had a specialist sort of treating somebody and had the time to sort of understand their history and all the aspects of their activities in life. But is that more of a challenge now that people don't have family physicians and tend to be going to clinics and hospitals? Like the form of treatment you just described, could a family physician actually do that effectively or would it need a specialist? They are probably the best. If you think about it, when I see a patient as a specialist, I might only meet them once. 
I'll meet them for an hour, and I'll have a wonderful conversation, and I'll be able to do a lot of good assessment with them. But the family doctor knows them, knows the family, knows the surroundings, knows how they're doing, knows all their other medical problems, knows what drugs they're on. So, in fact, if there's going to be anybody who can help in this situation, it's going to be the family dog. The problem is that in many ways the system is stripping that ability away from the family dog right. because they're harassed by you know, 16 people waiting outside trying to get in the door. We're not thinking of the common sense way of treating a chronic illness as serious as diabetes. Another big group, I live in Alberta, and I've engaged really large numbers of pharmacists who act as my allies when I'm trying to resolve some of these problems because they know as well. They know their, their clients and customers well. They know what drugs they're on, so they probably know what illnesses they're on. And they sometimes can alert me that there's another problem occurring and I should re reassess my treatment. They do the same with the family docs as well. So it becomes more rather than there being one important person, it's that team approach of conjoint professional care that leads to the best results. And there's no question that we have changed the care of diabetes. And in all the years that I've been uh, you know, looking after people with diabetes, the improvements are dramatic, and we need to make more. But it's not by driving our family docs into a cubbyhole trying to protect themselves when they should be spending time solving some of these problems. So I absolutely believe that that's where our real source of development and improvement will come through those linkages of family docs and their teams. You mentioned previously that there was new signs coming out, and I understand there was new research presented about once-weekly insulin. Can you describe that and what this could mean to people living with diabetes? Yes, it's a wonderful story. Anybody who does not have diabetes produces insulin 24 hours a day. It's not just disappearing and comes out when we eat. It's there all the time. And it provides sort of like a, a cruise control, if you like, of insulin levels. And then when we eat or we have stress or we have infection, the body spits out extra insulin to deal with it. So it's a combination of a flat line with lots of little spikes. So when you have to treat somebody with diabetes who needs insulin, we try and reproduce that. And up until relatively recently, it was not so easy because the long-acting insulins weren't long-acting at all. They'd last about 8 or 10 hours, and they would always provide a peak level of insulin, and then it would drop off to a, a sort of a, a trough. So trying to control blood sugars and everything with a varying level of insulin was difficult. Then we began to get better insulin that lasted a little bit longer. And in recent years, we've had the wonderful advantage of what we call long-acting insulins, which is, we're still given once a day, usually at any time of the day. And they set up sort of like a flat line, just like we're describing in the non-diabetic. And then people would add extra insulin only when they need it. But they still needed to take that insulin every day. Now they've come out with a once-a-week insulin, which does exactly the same thing. It's reproducing that flat line over the whole week, and it allows then the person to... There's two ways of treatment that might occur then. If the person is already on insulin, then they may need to take extra insulin prior to meals, but they can adjust that exactly to the type of meal and activity and everything else that they're doing. People become very good at doing that. And there are some people that if you just replace that baseline insulin, just put that bottom line back in again, we can manage with our new modern drugs with new tablets and other means of treating diabetes without 
using a lot of extra insulin. So the once a week allows the person not to take as many insulin injections and also probably get smoother control. And the research that was presented, they do what are called clinical trials. They compare the new method versus the old method and they sort of look to see whether one is better or basically is it the same and just as good. And that's what the research has showed. The research presented recently is indicating that yes, these once a week insulins are working very satisfactorily and I would expect them once they finish their research they will go through for submission to approval through the regulatory agencies like FDA and Health Canada and then they'll be uh, we'll have them available for clinical care and I think it'll be another step forward to help people manage their diabetes. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and telling us all about these advances. My pleasure. For more great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss sleep and stress on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Julian Heon is the vice president at Halio Clinic. He's a health and wellness enthusiast and is passionate about sleep. As an ex-professional skier and father, he's seen important impacts of good sleep on his life, both as an athlete, a parent, and as a business leader. And Julian's been on the show before. Welcome back, Julian. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing really well. So how prevalent are sleep disorders and how do we know if we suffer from poor sleep? Well, sleep disorders are actually quite prevalent, and uh, if anything, they're more and more prevalent. Uh, There's constant increases in our society right now where we're tracking percentages of people who are dealing with poor sleep. We're actually just north of the 50% mark right now of all adults that are struggling with poor sleep. So, as I said, pretty prevalent. Impacts, obviously, from the pandemic have been driving this up, but now we're also potentially on the verge of financial crisis or more difficult times from a financial and economic level. Those are all things that will have an impact on a greater group in terms of increasing sleep disorders. Yeah, I mean, I personally have noticed that my sleep, and it could just be a function of my age, but like I'm noticing that my sleep isn't as good as it used to be. And there's the baseline stressors that you've talked about with what's going on in the economy, etc. But I think there's more going on. What are some of the impacts in the workplace if we suffer from poor sleep? Well, so from a personal level, if we suffer from poor sleep, we'll be less attentive, we'll be less, you know, and not as much in a good mood. And that's going to have an impact on how we interact with people at the very individual level. In a group space or at the organizational level, there's obviously 
uh, greater impacts of that. One way to picture the impact as an individual, I often give the example of, you know, a Thursday night happy hour where we probably went to bed a bit too late, maybe had one or two drinks too many, and we, you know, walked up in the office in the morning and thought, it's going to be a very long Friday. I should have not come into work. That's going to be the impact that those people struggling with insomnia, with sleep disorders, experience every day as they struggle with their sleep. It's that daily, oh my God, my day will be long. I'm not going to be quite productive. So those are all kind of impacts that we can uh, relate to as people. Right. So what about some impacts that might be noticeable by our employer or the impacts for team leaders or employers? So as a team leader, if I'm leading a team of 10, 20, 50 people, if I go back to that 50% of individuals with sleep disorders or with uh, symptoms of insomnia, that means half of my team has a risk of potentially being not as productive, not as focused. So obviously on the team performance, we'll see some impacts of that. At the organizational level, there's studies, there's data out there that shows that there's a real impact in productivity, both in terms of absenteeism, but also presenteeism of people dealing with poor sleep. So what does that mean? Yeah. It means that people will be more absent. So if as an employer, I'm dealing with people that might need to be replaced if they're absent, it means my replacement cost, my overtime cost will increase. If I'm dealing with people who are not as productive, in some roles, it's only going to slow down the throughput. If people are in administrative roles, it's going to be you know slower throughput in terms of their projects. But in some other roles where it's maybe a higher safety risk role, people working in factory and manufacturing, first responders, then we see a direct relationship with accidents and errors in the workplace based on those days where it's actually up to 45 days on average of lost productivity and presenteeism a year and 10 days of absenteeism on average a year for someone that suffers from moderate to severe insomnia. So it's, it's not just one or two days. It's, it's something that's quite present. And those are the direct impacts, but I I would imagine there's collateral issues as well. For example, an interrelation with mental health issues, yeah? Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, I've been on the show before and we were talking about the relationships with mental health. Yeah, People with poor sleep will be a lot more likely to have anxious disorders, uh, depression. So poor sleep is actually one of the first symptoms of mental health issues. So if we can use that as something to track mental health disorders, then we have a good way of tracking it. But we can also use that to tackle and treat mental health. So what we can do when we treat sleep disorders is actually have an impact, a clinical impact on anxiety depression. So sometimes people will say, you know, I'm anxious by nature. What can I do? It's a lot harder to target an anxious disorder than it is to target sleep. There's physiological techniques in our treatments that make it really feasible. I wouldn't say easy, but feasible to treat poor sleep, mm-hmm. which means we have an impact on anxiety and depression. So it's all interrelated. The main difference as an employer is that the conversation is so much easier. It's so much easier to have a conversation on your employee's sleep than it is to have a conversation on your employee depression or anxiety where people are a lot more closed to having conversation, open conversation, whether it's with their managers, team leaders, or even HR about their situation. It's interesting because I would have conceived, you know, sleep to be a personal issue. And here you are suggesting it's a work issue and sort of treatable within the workplace context. So how can we solve for poor sleep impacts in the workplace? I'm interested to hear how that would work. 
Well, so at Alio, for example, our business model is actually exactly that. So we work with employers to essentially educate and elevate the conversation on poor sleep and good sleep so that employees become aware of why it's important to sleep well and become aware also of the symptoms that they might not be sleeping so well because it's not always black and white. It's not always as black and white as I'm not sleeping. Sometimes there's some symptoms that, you know, people fall asleep well, they don't really wake up in the middle of the night, but they might be waking up too early in the morning, can't really go back to sleep. Some of those people think they're rock stars, superstars, because they wake up at 5 a.m. with no alarm, go to work, but those same people are often tired in the afternoon. So there's different ways that we can raise the awareness in the workplace. And then it's all about making the treatment options accessible. And again, that's what we do here at Alio. We've taken something that is widely recognized as something that's medically efficient, which is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, actually exists been in, in the medical system for 40 plus year in Canada. It's recognized, recommended by doctors, but it's not really accessible. 18 months plus wait list in most hospitals, people have to drive there every day. So we've made a program that's employer-employee friendly. So it's virtual, but it's face-to-face. So it's a video conference once a week for only five weeks as opposed to three months. So when you combine all of that, plus the open conversation I was mentioning earlier, the result is actually one of the programs with the highest utilization in the workplace of all mental health and employee support programs. And the output is much beyond the health and wellness aspect of the individual. It's on the organization across the board in terms of productivity. We see disability numbers going down, medication costs going down, absenteeism, replacement costs going down. So it's pretty amazing when we see the, the, the collective impact of, of, of such a program in the workplace. You sound passionate about what you do. What got you excited about Halio and why did you join the organization? Well, it's a good question. So I've been in business roles most of my life. You know, I've lots of business development, marketing, sales roles where most of the motivation was personal driven, revenue, salary driven. Alio is it's actually a mission. You know, what we do here is pretty unique. I've been dealing myself with friends, people around me who have been struggling with anxiety, depression, some suicide, where I've seen relationships on how poor sleep is built up in something where they kind of lost control. So when I met with the group at Alio and I quickly understood, I mean, it's a business. We're certainly here to make money. I'm not going to say it's a non-for-profit. Right. The mission is just to get people sleeping better and it's to make this more accessible. We have a large group of research and development clinical research team that's really based our aims at making some research and some advancement. So we really have this mission that's there and that's what really got me excited. And early on, I had a few friends that tried the program, and it was probably too early for me to be as passionate as I am today about it. But those people came to me early on and said, hey, like, you know, I tried your program. It works, but not only does it work, but it actually changed my life. So that's kind of where coming from that background, also the skier and, and trying to perform in a sport, making some relationship on, we talked a lot about the impacts of poor sleep. But what's the potential of sleeping better and optimizing sleep? And maybe I'm not so much struggling with impacts of poor sleep, but could I perform so much better if I slept better? And that's where all of this topic really got me excited. And yeah, that's the story. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today to share it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure again. 
Thanks to all my wonderful guests, George Barakat, David Hunter, Dr. Stuart Ross, and Julianne Hayon. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The September-October issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.